The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be uh, up front with you again, and uh, great to have all these guests here. And you can see with the stage that the School of Music's at it again. A big concert tonight, so you want to take advantage of that. And as uh, yes, and as uh, Dean Purcell mentioned, Highlander. Games. Uh, someone did notice that I was wearing a blue suit this morning and asked if that was in support of the freshmen and juniors. And I'll just say that my red suit was at the cleaners. And uh, but uh, I am hopeful that you will uh, do well tonight. Uh, all four classes. I am impartial. Um, we're going to continue the series. Uh, think on these things, maintaining a biblical perspective in a cynical and subversive age. And this morning, I want to talk about the issue of faith and miracles, and I want to tease out a few ideas from this passage in John, but also uh, discuss the implications of it for the way that we think and live in this world. And uh, as you know, uh, throughout this semester on this Think on These Things uh, series, we've been tackling certain issues. We talked about uh, identity uh, and labels that we wear, uh, the culture around us, the uh, the way in which the culture would lead us towards uh, affiliation and association and wearing labels and the challenge that is for us as Christians to maintain our identity solely in Jesus Christ. We talked about some other issues last time, sin and grace and the importance of, of uh, being honest about sin in a world that rejects the idea of sin uh, and wrong and rejects the idea that we like talking about Jesus in ways that make us feel good about ourselves, but admitting that we're in need of a Savior is a different thing altogether. And yet as Christians, we can't allow ourselves to be pushed in that way. And this whole point of keeping or maintaining a biblical perspective in a cynical and subversive age is just that, that the day in which we live, which one could argue is always the case uh, for Christians in the world that God has placed them in, is now, I think, increasingly, as it becomes increasingly secularized, is increasingly cynical and subversive. That is, it is distrustful of all things stable, all things that claim to be uh, timeless and eternal, all things that claim to have authority. The cynical nature of the world in which we live would dismiss the things that we hold dear as being antiquated, outdated, oppressive, uh, irrelevant, so it's cynical about those things, but the worst part of it is it's also subversive, that it's trying to undermine our belief in the basic tenets of the Christian faith. We should not be duped into thinking that the thinking of the world around us is not trying to undermine the thinking that God's people are supposed to have. When we become followers of Jesus Christ, we are necessarily pointed in a different direction. And while we're preparing you to be his servants in the marketplace, every corner of society, in every corner of the world, we need you to understand that you're entering into territory that wants to pull at your sensibilities, at your judgments, at your evaluations, at your convictions, at your faith. And to really serve Jesus well in the context to which we've been called, we have to be really vigilant and diligent about our biblical thinking. And so I've tried to find just a few subjects. There are a couple more coming. I'd like to talk about the issue of purity and morality and intimacy. Uh, I'd like to talk about a couple of other things. But this morning, I want to talk about this issue of miracles and faith. And it has lots of different implications for us as Christians in this day and in this world. But I am convinced that we live in a day that rejects the miraculous intervention of God in the physical world. 
But you and I as Christians cannot afford to lose sight of the fact that the creator and sustainer of all things is also all-powerful. That the maker of the universe is not bound by these physical laws. You and I are bound by the law of gravity. God is not. Because he actually is the one that set the world into motion and ordered it to work this way. You and I do not get to, to, to be free from the law of gravity just because we decide, I don't accept the law of gravity. Right? I've used this example many times. I just think it's ridiculous to think, well, it, you know, I had a friend who one time said to me that after my father died, well, you believe he's in heaven, right? You believe there's a life ever after. Yes, I do. Well, then it's true. And I'm thinking, well, that's not very comforting just because I believe it's true. That, that's putting an awful lot of So whatever I believe to be true is true. Whatever I believe to be firm is firm. And if I reject something, then it can't be trusted. Well, think if that worked for the law of gravity. Those of you who are doubters in the law of gravity would be hovering in the room today while the rest of us were seated. You don't get to pick and choose. The law of gravity applies to all of us in the earth, but it doesn't apply to God. Because he's the one that did it. And so what happens to us is we live in a day that wants to reject this idea that, that the all-powerful God, the creator and sustainer of all things, is above those laws that, sit in, that, that are in place. He can do whatever he wills. And in fact, the Bible gives us story after story of him doing just that. And so for you and I, in a day that is pulling at this idea that it rejects all miraculous intervention of God in, in this world and in history, we can't afford to do that as Christians because what will happen to us is we will begin to erode our faith in all-powerful creator and sustainer God. We will find ourselves saying, you know, they're right. It probably was a figment of the disciples' imagination that Jesus was walking on the water. He gave the appearance of walking on the water. But that wasn't Peter's testimony when he took his eyes off the Lord. He was sinking. You say, well, well, you know, the people who ate at the multitude, the feeding of the multitude, they didn't really eat real fish and bread. Uh, they just sort of felt sated because Jesus' teaching was so satisfying it overcame their hunger motive. That's not the testimony of the folks that were there. The blind man who received his sight didn't say, well, it was as though I could see, even though I couldn't see, or it was as though I was blind, even though I could see. No, no. The testimony of those who were present says he was blind and made to see. And that's the teaching of Scripture, and that's the God we believe in, and that's the God we serve. So we have to hold fast this idea that the, our belief in God cannot be pulled apart by the thinking of the day in which we live. There are good things in this world for us to think about, good people with great ideas, but you and I, if we're going to interact in this world, if we're going to seek the welfare of the city to which God has called us, if we're going to be productive members of society, we must also be careful that we do not allow the thinking and sensibilities of those outside of faith in Jesus pull us away from the things that we believe to be true. That's absolutely critical in our day. It's critical to our mission of educating you to serve Christ. We don't educate you to serve Christ to send you out there to be torn apart and reject the things that you believe to be true about God and the world that he's created. We send you out to carry that message to a world that needs it, not be pulled down by it. And so we have to remember a couple of really key things. And I really do think it's important to remember that the testimony of Scripture and the witnesses to biblical miracles speak to us of parted seas, of bread from heaven, of healings of the blind, the lame, and the sick, of the virgin birth, 
and the resurrection of the dead. These are not legends. They are moments of divine intervention which suspend and upend the normal order of things. Think about the radical things, if you are a Christian, the radical things that you believe or are supposed to believe as a committed biblical Christian. You believe that God created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. We just sang it, beautiful things. Out of, out of nothing, God made all that is. He is not bound by the principles of matter. He made matter. God is not bound by normal human reproduction. The virgin birth is a miraculous intervention in the affairs of humankind. The Bible says Mary knew not a man. Jesus is the Son of God born of a woman. And you believe in the miraculous resurrection of the dead. Not just Jairus' daughter, not just Lazarus, not just Jesus, but one day when the trump sounds, the graves will shake, they will open, and the sea will give up its dead, and you and I will be changed forever. That's what we believe. It is a radical faith in that miraculous thing, the resurrection of the dead. And the Scripture and the witnesses of these miracles testify to these things. We can't waver. We should hold fast. And in this passage that Dean Porcello read for us, it's a great one because the Bible tells us right here, it's the first sign that Jesus does, the changing of the water into wine. A couple things about this to tease out. We know that Jesus did many things. They are not all recorded in John's Gospel or in all the Gospels. John says, Jesus did many things that could not be contained in this book. These are written down that you may believe. So here's something interesting when you're reading the book of John, and you know this if you studied here. You're reading through the book of John. These things are preserved by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the hand of John so that you and I might believe that our faith in Jesus would be strengthened and increased. And so this incident, the very first sign after the calling of the first disciples, is a miracle, God's intervention in the physical world that does just that. It strengthens the faith of the disciples. The last words that Dean Porcello read for us were this, and his disciples believed in him. So that miracle is to strengthen their faith. Here's what's happening in the world around us. People are questioning the reality of the miracles that's actually undermining our faith in today's world. The virgin birth, come on. It's a myth. It can't be true. If it's not true, folks, you're in trouble. The resurrection of the dead, that can't be true. That doesn't happen. Jesus swooned. He fell asleep. The tomb was cold. It's a lie. They stole whatever you want to say. What the, the, the apostles testify to this. If there is no resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied. So the truth is, these miracles that John records in his gospel are to strengthen us in our faith, yet we live in a day that is so preoccupied with tearing down these things that we hold to be true that it actually is weakening our faith. And you and I cannot afford that. We have to hold fast this teaching. And here we are in John 2, we see it. On the third day, there's a wedding at Cana. I love this story because what's happening in this story is something really powerful. The wine runs out where Jesus and his disciples are. And I promise you, this is not a sermon on wine. But the wine runs out, and the mother of Jesus goes to him and says, they have no wine. Now, interesting, right? Mary is intervening. It's not her wedding. It, she doesn't say, we have no wine. She says, they have no wine. And she's got her son, who 
like the Greek chorus would say, Mary knows he's the son of God. Everybody got that? Mary's not, <laughs> Mary knows who Jesus is. She goes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus turns and says, or a woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now, no, he's, he's kind of correcting Mary to not put her own desires ahead of the plan of God. And yet, his mother turns, and I think this is a great, honest picture of what happens. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. So while Jesus is the Son of God, Mary is his earthly mother, she goes to him and says, they have no wine. He says, that doesn't have anything to do with me. It's not time. It's almost like he says, no, Mom, I'm not doing it. And then she says, do whatever he says, which is saying, yes, you are, son. Right? Yes, you are, son. She knows he's the son of God. And so here's Jesus. He, he, then, he then instructs them, as Mary had indicated, to bring these jars and fill them with water. And what happens is a miracle. The water turns to wine. Such good wine that the guests and the bridegroom, there's this reality that, and you know, the, you've heard sermons on this. It's kind of funny. You serve the good wine first. Because by the time everybody is well lubricated and inebriated, they can't tell the difference. But at the end of this wedding, the good wine comes out, and it perplexed everybody. Jesus doesn't change the water into adequate wine. He turns the water into the best wine. So even in this miracle is something else. It's not like Jesus is saying, just do what mom said, and we'll turn this into wine, and nobody will know the difference. We'll do a half miracle, low-grade wine. We don't want anybody to go blind, but we don't want anybody to be too impressed, Right? And so, but that's not what Jesus does. He turns it into the best wine. And so it's important for us to remember what happens. He does this sign, and it's so miraculous, the first of his signs, that it says these disciples who were with him, those early ones, Peter and his brother and, and a few other, they believed in him. The changing of water into wine by Jesus was an act of powerful molecular transformation. Not a psychological manipulation of the sensations and perceptions of the guests. It manifested his glory. It was not a parlor trick. When Jesus changes the water into wine, it's not that Jesus hypnotized the guests into thinking that water tasted like wine. The Son of God, who was there at the beginning, whom the Bible testifies to, nothing was made that was not made by him. He is the center of all things, and in him all things hold together. That one changed H2O to whatever Mr. Jensen said is the molecular formula for wine, right? It's a molecular transformation. Jesus intervenes and changes the substance of the water into wine. It's not like going to a high school assembly like I did when I was in high school and watching a hypnotist convince people on the stage that when they bit into an onion, onion that it tasted like an apple. This isn't what was going on. The water became wine. It became the best wine. And that is not a parlor trick. The Bible tells us here it manifested his glory. It didn't get done to impress people. It was done to say, this is the Son of God, and even the molecules obey him. That's really what this is. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's manifesting his glory. It's not a parlor trick. It's not a parlor trick. And it isn't the manipulation of others. And I've talked to my counterparts who say things like this. I, I just can't believe someone who has those degrees and that much of an intellectual background still believes in the virgin birth. And my response is, 
but you believe in Bigfoot. A fuzzy photo? We have the testimony of the people who were there. We have Mary's own words. We have the prophets and the Scripture. I can't believe someone of your credential believes in the resurrection. Not just of Jesus, but the resurrection of the dead. But you believe in the Loch Ness Monster. And UFOs. And aliens. That's the pull that is at us. That we somehow are intellectually inferior because we believe in divine intervention. While the world around us embraces nonsense painted with intellectual whitewash. We should not be capitulating any ground on this as biblically-minded men and women. There's no reason for us to concede any of this. There were human beings who saw Jesus die, saw him laid in the grave, and saw him three days later. That is testified to. It is firm. Jesus was dead and then alive. And then alive. Mary and Martha embraced their brother who was in the grave for four days and stunketh much, as the Bible said. This is the dilemma that we find ourselves in. You and I have to answer these questions. Joshua crosses the Jordan on dry ground and he builds that cairn at Gilgal. He didn't say to the people, we're going to build this cairn because we had to swim that river and we all got wet, but it felt like dry ground. No, it says they built the cairn at Gilgal that testified to coming generations that the Lord God brought His people across that river on dry ground. We have testimony that bears up that God did these things. And so I want you to be thinking about this on a couple of fronts. One, conceptually, in terms of our living in this context. This is a university, and we want you to study, and we want you to learn. It's a Christian university where we put the Bible and the person and work of Jesus Christ at the center of all we do. We do that on purpose, not because these things are at war with one another, but because we believe it's the only coherent approach to gathering knowledge. Knowledge of this world, apart from knowledge of the one who made it and sustained it, is is short. We have to marry these things and understand they go together. And one of the things we need to think about is that faith and science are not mutually exclusive. Faith is not the enemy of science. The ideas of faith and miracles are not in conflict with the scientific method. In fact, I would argue those historic figures who gave shape to the scientific method for us believed in these very things. Faith is not the enemy of science, brothers and sisters. It's the worldview of scientism that faith confronts and challenges. And science is not the enemy of faith. Unbelief, not inquiry, undermines faith. It isn't the question, it's the lack of belief. We just launched science majors. We just installed labs. We want to send people into this sector of society. They are not necessarily if they do exist in tension. If, if you want to read more, you look back a couple magazines ago, Dr. Plummer and Mr. Jensen wrote great articles about this for your consideration and thinking. Faith is not the enemy of science, and science is not the enemy of faith. We are problematic because we are flawed and limited human beings. 
thinking about just a couple of things. There's a new book out or, uh, called American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, and Technology. And in it, this author from University of North Carolina, D.W. Pasolka, points out that UFOs and aliens are becoming a form of religion in America. What was thought to be sort of fringe element is now we have credible people in the halls of our most powerful and prestigious institutions believing in alien life forms. These same people who would reject the virgin birth are convinced that we've been visited frequently. Maybe even that some of you in our midst are, as Men in Black said, exiles. Yet they reject the virgin birth and the resurrection of the dead. But even more seriously than that, than UFOs and life in other, on other planets, we have this struggle even in terms of our own intellectual pursuits around this belief that God is the creator of the universe, that he made all things out of nothing by his word, and that human beings are made in his image and likeness. They are not the product of chance. Michael Behe, the biochemist at Lehigh University has a new book out, Darwin Devolves. If you're interested in this, you should read it. While we accept microevolution, what Darwin lacked was knowledge about DNA. The technology and research that comes from the scientific method has been showing us that we're short-sighted, that DNA actually is something more significant. Darwin didn't have that information at his disposal. What he thought was chance is actually design. Well, that's not a surprise to us. Because we believe in God who is the creator of all things. There's no surprise to us that DNA contains all the information necessary to watch life develop and take shape. It's not a surprise to me. I remember being at Temple University and a faculty member of mine after reading in physics and chaos theory for years said, Todd, this must really be bothering you. It must be eroding your faith. No, no, not at all. It affirms my faith because I believe in the one in whom all things hold together. And when scientists tell me that they've found the thing that holds atomical, atomical parts together, I already knew that. Because the maker and sustainer of all things is the one who holds all things together. I was thinking about this. The, world that, the, the thinking of the world which would reject things like creation and the virgin birth and the resurrection of the dead the scientific evidence of our day is suggesting that mutation only destroys and erodes information necessary for life. It never advances it. But it's almost as though the consensus view in science views mutation as though we'll look the other way on the evidence and rather watch the X-Men. That somehow mutation is good for us, which will give us a breed of superheroes, rejecting all evidence to the contrary, that even in forms of bacteria, mutation destroys the organism. Folks, it's a battle for your minds. It is not just about whether or not you believe in science and creation. It's tearing at the belief in God as creator and sustainer. And I'll tell you this right now. The book of Hebrews, when it describes faith, does something really powerful. In Hebrews 11, it describes faith as substantive and firm and full of conviction. It's not merely wishing something to be true. It's being certain because God gives it and, is, and the evidence that affirms it says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here's my concern for you. 
whether you have interest in these scientific and intellectual pursuits or not, you live in a day, a cynical and subversive day, that is pulling at these things to say they are not true, they cannot be true. It's nonsense to believe it. While they believe their own nonsense, it's nonsense to believe it. And it pulls at your faith. And my concern, greater than your faith in the God who made things with his word, is that it will erode your faith in Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for sin. The same faith that you experienced in placing your faith in Jesus is the faith that should sustain you in this world. To hold firm the things that you believe to be true. To be people of conviction. Not dismissing intellectual pursuits or inquiry. Not afraid to ask questions. But understanding that asking questions and unbelief are two different things. I learned as, a, as an incoming student at this institution decades ago. We believe there is a God who made all things and has revealed himself to us in the Bible. We start there. You build from there. Everything holds together. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to be Jesus' servants in this world, we must be people who hold together. Our faith must be sure. It is a gift from God, and he has given us all we need to convince us. All we need to do is listen, learn, and trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. We ask that you would give us what we need to be your servants in this world. Strengthen us in our minds and hearts as your people. Give us the conviction of our faith. Firm up for us our belief and assurance in the things that we hope for. We pray, Father, you give us the faith to believe that you are the creator and sustainer of all things and that your son Jesus is our Savior in whom is the only hope for humankind. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless. Have a great day.